Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. I hope you're all doing well and safe at home. Episode 62 features Dr. Sean Mannion, Chief Scientific Officer of Consensus Health. He recently co-authored a fantastic book called Blockchain for Medical Research. Sean served as Deputy Chief of Staff and later as Research Activities Chief as a federal civilian for the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center. He oversaw a research network of more than 100 clinical researchers conducting dozens of studies at multiple Department of Defense and VA hospital sites across the country. If you know me, you'll know that I'm a big proponent of open science and collaborative efforts to accelerate research in all fields of science and technology. As an industry leader, Sean deeply understands the many intricacies of creating an environment and the incentives for open science. In 2017, he founded an organization called Science Distributed with a goal to create a platform that would use blockchain and distributed ledger technology to develop trust in the scientific community. It's an aspirational vision, and there's still many cultural and institutional changes needed to achieving that goal. Although the COVID-19 pandemic may trigger a greater need for proof of science, adoption of decentralized ledger technology has proven it will take time. I share Sean's future vision of science, and I'm pleased to share my conversation with him on Health Unchained. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now let's start the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Dr. Sean Mannion, Chief Scientific Officer at Consensus Health and founder of Science Distributed. And we'll get into many conversations about what Science Distributed is, what its mission and purpose is, and also about what's going on with COVID-19, how is blockchain helping, and any other topics that we stumble upon. So Sean, thank you so much for joining today's show. Thank you for having me. I think it'd be great for you to kind of give a brief introduction of your background. Certainly. Um, I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist by training. I did my undergrad in uh, biochemistry at Temple University, and I did my graduate training um, in the neuroscience program at Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences um, in the psychiatry department. Um, Uniformed Services is a um, military medical school, but lets civilians uh, into the graduate program. So I went there as a civilian, but it was my first exposure to military medicine. And uh, it kind of took me on a path that I, I, I followed for almost two decades. I um, ended up working um, after a postdoc in a research administrative role with um, the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, which was um, a fascinating learning experience on, on a lot of different levels, both from... Um, the scientific perspective and accelerating science in uh, an area, traumatic brain injury and PTSD, 
um, in a time where we had a lot of need for that in the field um, for, for the service members, as well as the veterans coming back. Um, but also in the D.C. area, just being in the bureaucratic environment and understanding what worked and what didn't work administratively for science. It taught me a lot about how to bypass problems, how to fix problems, but also where there was systematic problems that really slowed down science in a way that um, impacts us all, um, both from a taxpayer perspective. You invest a lot of taxpayer money in, in science that will help uh, help us um overall in our health and well-being, but also help with specific missions like military readiness. Um, but also from just a human perspective, knowing that uh, research that is meant to advance science or advance health uh, and health outcomes doesn't happen as quickly as it could. Um, and I mean, with, with the current technology and the current systems, there's, uh, there's bottlenecks and there's slowdowns. Um, and so I think that uh, overall experience was very educational for me. Um, in 2016, around the time that uh, Health and Human Services Office of the National Coordinator um, held a white paper contest for blockchain in healthcare, I was just learning about the concept myself. Um, I had uh, a friend who who had, uh, he, he ran a bar and he had hosted the Bitcoin meetup there since 2011. Um, and he was very versed with the technology uh, and the cryptocurrency aspect. I, I, I didn't know much about it. Um, and as he listened to us, um, me and some other fellow researchers talk about how to take a network of research and make it um, work better and work faster without any more resources um, and hitting a, the bottleneck that we did, which we were the trust mechanism that allowed hundreds of different researchers to to work together and trust each other. Um, he said, you need a blockchain. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, I had never heard the word before. And so I went home. I Googled it after talking to him for a little bit, and that's where I found the, the white paper contest for health and human services. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, just a whole room of light bulbs went off for me. I saw an array of different things that could be done, both with clinical care and research and advancing research into better clinical care. Um, but I also saw at what I'd been learning about all those impediments in the way. And since then, it's been a little bit of a journey taking all that I've learned from a basic science perspective, a clinical science perspective, a bureaucratic perspective, a policy perspective, and then taking this new technology and seeing how we can make it all a little bit better. No, thank you for that. I think that's that's really great. And, you know, when I think about science, it's such a broad term, such a broad idea, and it's been around for you know, many centuries, uh, if not millennia. And how is it? so different now in one way we have all these tools the internet you know communication tools we have tools for statistical modeling however we've become more disconnected in the way that we share this information and that we um, try to bring some of that new insight into the real world yeah i don't know if you have have any responses to that statement well i i have a lot and it's 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 kind of a, a bit of a long story of how science has progressed and changed so we can't can't cover all of it but i think you know modern science as it is and as it has been for the past about 300 years or so um has um stayed in some ways structurally the same but the um amount of it being done the focus of where it is the money behind it um who's doing it and the amount of people doing it and the simple scaling of it has changed drastically especially in the past 75 years since uh, since shortly after World War II. Um, it has been um, not overhauled, 
but scaled without any overhauling. And I think that's created a lot of the challenges that we have. Um, science is one of the best systems we have set up in, in human existence. It gives us um, the most secure foundation of knowledge that we can have in many instances about the world around us and within, within us. Um, I don't know that we have structurally anything similar from a factual perspective in history and a factual perspective in world events going on um, where you have this, you know, I, I call it a blockchain of science, a, an almost um, structured system of referencing what has come before in a way that is relatively immutable. Um, it has been analog for the past 300 years. People um, do research and the research, you know, is an observation. It's, it's setting up in many instances experimentation based on that observation. It's doing the testing, it's interpreting the results and it's communicating those. Um, and that has been happening in repeated iterative cycles that gets recorded into these, you know, equivalent of blocks, which is basically uh, a research paper. And, and those um, in their current form have been around for, for about 300 years. And then each subsequent paper that's on the same topic doesn't need to repeat those same experiments. There's, there are times when repeating experiments strengthens um, our knowledge, but it also can be built out from each one of those. And in each of those subsequent uh, papers that is um, able to reference the, all that came before. It's almost like a hash, and there's a the standard way that those are those are put into new papers, and a, a standard way those are read and interpreted as being built upon what has come before. Um, not exactly the same thing as a blockchain, but not dissimilar, and and, and almost similar in a lot of different ways. Um, it's what we've what we've built up, but over the past. 75 years or so, there was there was a push after World War II in the U.S. primarily to start um, the really worldwide um, quickly quickly thereafter to use science in the fast and effective way it had been used during the wartime setting to really advance human technology, advance human engineering, advance human medicine, and advance advance these applications of science. Um, and that that brought a lot more money to bear. That brought a lot more interest in it. That brought a lot more people doing it. And that scaled up that same system. At the same time, the the, the journals that publish these these uh, you know re this, this, this book of science, um, if you will, or this this blockchain of science, um, they began to expand out. And so, it used to be a few professional societies in each area having sort of the authority um, to do the peer review and place something in the new in the new you know each brick in the new wall of science. Um, became a little bit more diffuse and a little more vast and maybe had a little less of a barrier to entry. And so we accelerated science, we scaled science, but we also diluted it to some degree. And that's been ongoing for the past 75 years or so. And, and that's been integrated with both science on the private side, publicly funded science, academic base of science, some of the structures administratively, grant review within, within uh, nonprofits and, and federal agencies have become industries in themselves that are built up around it. It has made the whole um, process more expensive. It has made the whole process slower. It has made in its scaling um, the process a little less signal and a little more noise. And I think that what we see now is we still have a very, very good system, but it's a system that has moved from being almost a steady increasing in return on investment to now slightly dropping off in its return on investment. And I think that what we need to do is look at how we do science, how it changes in the modern day, how it changes its scale, and how we can apply some of the new technologies like blockchain technology 
to improve a lot of the science that is done. And I think that's, you know, in a nutshell, or maybe a very large nutshell, um, how I see the progression of science and how I see the applications of, of blockchain starting to come into view. Yeah, and I think that's such a great analogy to have science be seen as sort of like a immutable ledger of information of, of history and the way that human beings learn and then use that knowledge to grow and become better and, and build new things that were never you know dreamed of. Uh, I think that's awesome. And you've also wrote a book, you co-authored the blockchain for a medical research book. And you want to tell us a little bit more about that and how you've developed like a framework for people to actually implement these sorts of uh, new models? Certainly. Um, I, uh, I recently published a book with a co-author, Yael uh, Bazzotti-Kennedy. Um, she's a journalist. I'm a scientist. We, she's been covering blockchain. I've been looking at blockchain and how to apply it. Um, she interviewed me for a couple of stories that she wrote. I, um, I appreciated the, the level of details that, that, that she asked about, that she wrote about. also appreciated that she got what I said, not only right within the story, but she really did select some of the best nuggets of what I said. And so we, we had been working well together um, in some small capacities, and I had, uh, I had an idea for a book. I, I wanted to, to put together a book on blockchain applied to science because I, I saw a lot of value in explaining the vision that I saw but I saw a lot of distance between the scientists I spoke to who didn't quite understand what this technology was and what it could do, and the technologists I spoke to who didn't quite understand the, the complexity of medical research compared to, say, financial uh, technology. So the, the, the FinTech background is a very sort of one-dimensional data stream that doesn't have much variation in how an exchange is made in one place versus another, whereas research data and medical data in general has a lot of noise and a lot of variability to it, how and where different research is weighted, how and where different data is um, is valued and analyzed. Um, it it has, has a tremendous array of, of complexity to it. And so I needed the technologists to understand the research be better, and I needed the researchers to understand the technology better in order to have one conversation about where this could go in the future. Um, but my ability to communicate that was itself limited. I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm used to writing technical papers. I did write to learn to write in government, uh, you know, uh, reports to Congress and things that were broken down simply, but but nothing with the fluidity and the, and the sort of accessibility that, you know, a, a, an average news article or a magazine article would have. With, with the IL, she had both an interest and a knowledge of the, the technology we were talking about, but also an ability to write things in, access, in an accessible way. And so we, we decided to work together on a book. We, we, we pitched that book to uh, a publisher, um, CRC Press, under Taylor & Francis um, in 2019, saying, you know, hey, we want to put this thing together and we think it would be valuable. Um, we're going to have interviews because she's used to interviewing uh, people as, as a journalist. She can do that quite well. We're going to have interviews with people from around the, the, the industry, both technology, the blockchain industry, as well as the healthcare industry and the research community. Um, and they said, yeah, that'd be, that would be great. I had, I had, I had published a, a chapter with another book with them in early 2019. Um, so we set the task to writing that in, in 2019 with really three parts to it. Um, well, the first part is explaining the technology in very simple terms, um, not for, not for uh, deep dive for technologists, but really so that the people who aren't even paying attention could, could capture the idea of it, but also be captured by the idea of what it could do. And then the second section was was a breakdown of of uh, 
of medical research, what it is, what science is, how it gets formed in medical research, where it works and where it doesn't work, where some of the shortcomings are, and where some of the applications of what's called open science or keeping science a, a much more shared and accessible thing um, can help alleviate some of the, the bottlenecks that we see. Um, and with those two sort of foundational parts written, we then, you know, dove into a third part, which was really exploring where this technology could go, how it can give us what we like to say is better science, cheaper research, and faster miracles. Um, and, and, and with that breakdown, um, sort of the cherry on top or the, the end of the book um, is, is really a, a framework that I took from my government years in trying to set up a, fra a, a skeleton of a strategic plan um, as, as I would have if I was pulling together, you know, 50 different stakeholders in a room for three days to try and figure out how we would attack the problem and how we would approach it. Um, so, so we put together this strategic plan, outlined a picture of where we are um, with this technology as it's being looked at in various funding agencies and federal, federal uh, agencies, and, and then a vision of the future and what it could do. And then a step-by-step, -step, um, you know, with a 30,000-foot level view of what needs to be done to start to get there. And, and we put that in there to make the book not just of, of interesting value, but to, to give it some immediate practicality. Um, and, and as we wrap that book up in the writing in the end of 2019 and put it to the publisher and it takes several months to get it proofed and get it edited, um, we thought we had made a very nice contribution both to the blockchain space, but also the research space and the medical research space in general. Um, we, we wrote it to be accessible, you know, patients and caregivers, as well as doctors and nurses and, and researchers and technologists. And, and, and we were pretty pleased with what we had created. Um, and then of course, as we approached the end of March, we uh, were looking at this book being released the, the, the last day in March, um, the world started to change a little bit with uh, what we now are calling uh, coronavirus or, or, or COVID-19 and the disease it causes. Um, and uh, we, we started realizing we were gonna launch a book about accelerating research um, and how to do that at the exact time that the country and the world is trying to figure out how to do that. Um, it, I, I, it, was, it, it was both the worst and possibly the best time to release this book. Um, it, it, the worst in the sense that um, I still don't have a physical copy of this. Um, it was released uh, three weeks ago, um, but because of the um, economic and, and, and uh, mm -hmm. non-essential um, business shutdown, uh, the place that is creating the books, the place that is, is actually ma manufacturing them, was drawn down. And the only ones available are being prioritized for those people who have made a purchase. And so author copies and other copies are, um, if the physical book are not, not available. Um, we had wow. to do a virtual launch, which was, which was fun, but you know, maybe we, we would have done if we were in person in different cities. Um, and it, 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 it's a very noisy time that um, there's a lot going on and people don't have time to pay attention to, hey, yeah, that's great. You have a book out. I don't have time for that right now. Um, that, that made it sort of one of the worst timings that I could have imagined. But at the same time, we just wrote a book about accelerating research with, with a technology that, quite frankly, a lot of decision makers and, and leadership in business and industry and government have been ignoring for the past few years. And as, as my colleague, uh, Dr. Alex Kahana likes to say, all of a sudden his phone was starting to ring with all those people who had ignored him talking about this technology for the past few years, now asking, how does this help us? How does this save us? Um, there's many applications across healthcare that are being looked at and that can be useful right now. 
the applications we've described in the book, in the book, um, I think are critical right now. And I think people are paying attention to this book and paying attention to what it has in it in a way they wouldn't have normally. Um, and of course, that that last chapter where we've basically outlined a plan for anyone who wants to use it um, is 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 I think you know a, a just just an absolute boon of, of of timing in that this is something we've given to the world um, at the time that it needs it. And of course, I, I, I talked to Yael and I talked to the publisher and I said. You know, it's 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 great to sell books to everybody. You know, that's the economy which is suffering right now. We want to do that. It's you know nice to be able to you know say you have book sales if you want to write another book or something beyond just monetary. But at the same time, that piece of it I felt was important enough to just give away. And so we 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 agreed with you know this this is just a week or two after releasing the book to to give away that that section of the book for free. And I put that up on my science distributed website. Um, www.sciencedistributed.com, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit what that is and, and what it's going to be. Um, but we just put it out there so everyone can look at it and read it and say, oh, here's the framework of a strategic plan. Oh, I'm government agency X. I would have had to pay $150,000 to bring a facilitator in and then bring a whole bunch of people in and, and spend 24 hours of meeting time to get to where we are with this. And now it's just been handed to us. So go use it. Take it, you know, jump out from there, use it as a jumping off point. If you need help with that, of course, give me a call and we'll figure out how to do that. But but I hope people are taking it and running with it. And I've already gotten some feedback that that's happening. And that's that for me makes um, well beyond publishing a book, all of the effort that we put into it very worthwhile. Yeah. And I want to thank you for not only writing the book and going through all the research and refining it and and sharing it, but really for taking the time to think through all these issues. I did read your final chapter that you posted, and one of the uh, paragraphs that was interesting to me was regarding or talking about data analysis and how you're saying the way we do statistical analysis is kind of sort of flawed. And this is quietly one of, I'm quoting now, this is quietly one of the most prominent weak points in research, resulting in the perpetuation of questionable results. And obviously, if we have articles and um, data that people are using to build new experiments but that original data is faulty that's that's a big problem because we're wasting a lot of resources and time where it seems like something that should have been you know appropriately been documented in the first place Um, any comments on like how data analysis significant what is significant in terms of looking at data and that's a whole other podcast i'm sure and 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 it it is, and 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 I don't I don't want to um, be too accusatory. I mean, it, you know, the, the the book was simplified to make sure we were making the right points without having to dive deep into each one. The the statistical validity of research and the statistical validity of research across many different fields um, varies widely, and that that's something that is well known, well documented. There's people who spend their whole careers diving into it who can speak to it much better than I can. You know, the, the, the bottom line is that statistical significance itself is important, but the statistical power of any um, set of data and any research that is done is, is equally, if not more important in some instances. And, and, you know, going back to some of the challenges with scaling of science, uh, we've gotten to a point where we have a misalignment of the incentives of science and the incentive systems of science um, with the goal of science. And if the goal of science is to bring truth and bring, you know, to the highest degree possible knowledge into this wall of human human knowledge and, and science, scientific um, framework, we, we have um, 
sometimes now incentivized less than top quality work going into there. It's almost though we, we degraded the quality of the bricks that we're putting into a wall. You eventually are going to get structural problems with the wall. And you see this more in some areas than in others. Um, but every time you have retractions and every time you have um, problems with a particular paper, you see a you know immediate backtrack of a, a decade or more's worth of work that has been based upon that that kind of crumbles with it um, or starts to degrade. Well, this this diluted science, if you will, it's not that it's bad or it's it's it's, it's malicious or it's intended to deceive. It's that things are rushed and sometimes studies with less impact than they should or maybe no significant impact at all are published and then are taken um, by other scientists and in some cases just by the public and they're run with as, well, this is the new knowledge. Um, this, this was happening almost ubiquitously over the, you know, the, the past two and a half decades that were my career in science. Um, you, you see it, you know about it, you try and avoid it yourself, but nobody's perfect. And so you're rushing to get the paper in because that's what you need to get to the next level. That's what you need to graduate. That's what you need to get to, um, you know, uh, the next stage in your, in your professional career. But at the same time, you, you really should spend a lot more time detailing every piece of it that goes into it and things get rushed and things get put in, um, into the permanent record of science that maybe are not as, ironclad as the world likes to think they are. Um, and I don't want to say that they're bad. I want to say that they're, they're diluted a little bit sometimes. And that happens more and more when the incentive system gets, gets off from just making truth and just making um, building our knowledge, the goal to publish or perish, to get the right publications in the right place and just do enough so that you can get to the next level. We've had too much of that, I think. And I, I think that one of the things blockchain can do is give us more of a, a framework of double check, um, both opening up um, with a new transparency, but also a, a more rapid and cheap auditing system that will, hmm. you know, it keep people a little more honest. Um, if you know your work is getting checked, you're going to put a little more effort into that work because it's it, it can at any moment be checked. With blockchain as a as a structural framework for an audit system of data, you have a way that eventually with some culture change with some focus in, in how we do and record everything um, that we that we take into account in science you can have this double check be available at any time and that will sharpen up science that'll make people spend a little more time do a couple more uh, repeats of experiments add a few more um, you know numbers to the, the end that they need for the experiment, build up the scientific or, or build up the statistical power along with just getting that end that they need. Or, or they, they will be better at the science that they do. And that will show in the quality of each of those bricks that go in the wall and the overall structural soundness of, of that, that sort of wall of knowledge that we're building. Not to get too esoteric with that, but it's just, it's, 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 a technology that allows us to do what we could be doing anyway by making it cheaper and faster to do it. And in, that, in this case, what I'm saying is, is the auditing and the, and the recording of what statistical applications were done along with what data was put in and how that data was collected. This can really be structurally set up for every experiment that, that gets done. It can be tracked back in every publication, not just by the authors, not just by the editors, but by any reader. And once that is possible, once that is cheap and easy to do, all of the science that goes into it will just be checked and double checked a little bit better. Yeah, 
I love the vision. I, I think I get it too. And I think there are so many ways to alter the incentives in science too. I understand the whole publish or perish motto that PIs uh, you know, believe in. It's true. I've seen it in science as well. And um, I actually have a paper published in Nature. Uh, check it out. It's on a uh, high-fat diet in, in mice. Um, but anyways, I think to me what's interesting is the level of collaboration that can become more available to people because now you have a system with blockchain where you can prove where people participated and also provide them with the credit that they deserve for the work that they're doing or the inputs that they have put into the the research or studies and i think we don't have that right now i think there are collaborations of course in science but it's probably not adequately um, audited or checked and also oftentimes you have experiments that fail and i think a lot of scientists, either they disregard their failures, they don't include it in all their publications, or they just discard it completely. Uh, I think in the future with blockchain, we'll value those failed uh, experiments at a higher level because I think it'll provide a better understanding of, of science you know, comprehensively. Well, I think... Um, I, I, you know, the, 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 the quote that I, I, I wish I could attribute it to the right person, but I, whenever I, I say someone said it and someone corrects me and gives me an earlier instance of where it came from. But the, 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 the quote is that scientists would rather share a toothbrush than share data. And, and that, that yeah. succinctly sums up, um, one of the biggest challenges in moving science forward faster. Um, as a federal research administrator, we were often told, Hey, we funded all this research. We want that data available. We want that people chopping at it. We want all the the, the informed individuals who know, um, in my case, it was traumatic brain injury, to be looking at this traumatic brain injury data and giving us the best interpretation so that we can get that into the clinic and help people sooner and faster. And the military was really um, kind of groundbreaking in how, how much it prioritized speed of moving research forward faster. Wow. Um, there, there, there were some challenges overall with structure and, and, and how they did it, but it was a goal that was very laudable that maybe is is less of a priority at NIH where where research is, is, is the, the quality is of higher priority than the speed. Um, and so that trade-off is a little bit different. So I, I learned a lot being within the military structure, um, but at the same time, you, you are still working with scientists who, you know, going back to the incentive system, if I spend a year of my life designing a study, getting it through IRB, and then another year or two collecting all the data for it. And then I'm about to spend another year of my life um, doing the analysis and writing up and publishing papers. And you're telling me as soon as that data is available, I have to put it in a database where 20,000 people who may or may not have spent any time doing what I did, but may have a whole you know entourage of graduate students can just dive in and put it out there faster than I can. And my career is over, even though I just spent three years doing all that work, um, I'm, I'm not cool with that. And so they did try to set up databases that um, they wanted everyone who was getting federal funding. And this was this was NIH with the VA, with the DOD saying, hey, we're going to have the shared database. It was a great idea. Um, you know, the people who, who set it up were, were, you know, very smart about getting data standardized so it could be reused, so meta-analyses can be done. But at the same time, the governance structure for getting those researchers to agree was a, a, a nightmare. And I, I, I had one colleague who she was on the, the working group, the common data, data elements uh, working group for traumatic brain injury research 
for, for close to a decade and the arguments she would tell me about, about, you know, okay, we're going to do this and everyone has six months from the last time, the last patient um, being enrolled to getting that data out and giving it out to the rest of the world. And they're like, I don't have time to write the paper and get everything that I could out of it and that. And so people were going to steal my ideas and, yeah. you know, and it was constant back and forth. Well, what if we made it 12 months? Well, here we have this. Well, you know, what if we made it 12 months, but we allowed people to apply for exemptions? Okay. And then you get 95% are, are applying for exemptions. Um, the, the application of that idea fell apart with the governance. And that's because the, the current incentive system in science is to reward those people who are the publishers of the science, not those who created the idea. And so until you can get those incentives aligned, until you can figure out how to do that at scale within the institutions that are there, um, you, you, you ran into the scientists not wanting to play ball with um, uh, you know, just sharing everything they had as soon as they had it. With, with blockchain, we have, we, we, we have a new tool we have the ability to do something. You know, we probably could have figured out a way to do it with current technology. It was just so so ineffective or, or, or so costly to do that no one even bothered to figure it out. But now, um, the ability to track in an almost immutable way, um, fractionalization of input, and and here we can not only track people's contribution in a way we couldn't do before, but we can even fractionalize it in a way we haven't been able to. You know, instead of saying, oh, you've got, you know, PI, um, or, you know, the, the, the principal investigator over here who's, you know, on every paper and then the grad student, a couple of techs. Well, there's usually other people who contributed, you know, whether it's someone in the animal care facility who had some involvement and, in, you know, their day job is is making sure those animals are kept in, you know, healthy environments so that you've got stability in what you're doing and they're not ridden with disease or, you know, you're able to do what you what you plan to do. There's people who contribute in a lot of different ways that never give credit. What if what if you could fractionalize and instead of only the top three or four people who did something for the paper, you could actually fractionalize the credit for everybody who was involved in some significant way. And that way, if that becomes something that's monetizable, you know, if a patent comes from that or if it's something that that wins an award, that monetization could even be tracked back and fractionalized to the contribution. All of that is now possible. You're using blockchain to track back the, the beans for a coffee that you purchase and you can tip right there the person who grew the beans or half a world away. Um, it is not inconceivable that you could do the same thing within science and that you could incentivize better science and more people being involved in science. You know, science is one of those things that every question you answer brings about two or three other other questions that, that are there. You know, people talk about industry being, you know, in, in different places, being overtaken by by machines or machine learning or AI or robots. And, yeah, we got all of that. And, yes, it's going to happen in many instances. But then what happens afterwards? Well, in science, you're going to have you're going to have the ability to do more science. It's just going to be what details are done by humans versus what details are done by augmentation by machines will will vary. But science can scale infinitely. And if you, if you could if you could figure out how to do four to five times the current science with the same budget, imagine how how innovative that would be with advancing knowledge. Now imagine that a lot of that extra skill that comes from humans, that that gamification that you can do and is already being done in some instances for how to fold proteins. Well, computers can do that, but they get certain things wrong. So you need humans to double check and verify how, how it's being done. Some people were already gamifying that and putting it into video games. What if you were taking the people who were only a little bit interested in being involved in science enough to say, yeah, 
I'll, be, I'll help out science when I play my video game. And you allow them to get some contribution from that, both in, you know, hey, I did something good, but hey, I earned a little bit of money while I was playing my video games. And then you took the next level of interest and people who were pre-science in, in high school or they were in another field, but like to tinker with it, they can do some more in-depth or detailed analysis that, that that's uh, in some way fractionalized or in some way um, spread out and crowdsourced. And that would get them a contribution. That contribution could be noted both in a publication, but that contribution could be monetized in some way. So now all of a sudden you have high school students who might be interested in doing certain types of statistical analysis or, or data science, and they're, they're earning what they could earn, you know, working at Wendy's, um, just sitting at their computer doing what they like doing anyway. And then the next thing you know, they've got publications before they're ever getting into college. Are there ways that we could take all of the scientists like myself who moved away from the bench, who moved away from academia, and let us use some of the more advanced knowledge that we have and apply that back in the system? Um, there are, there are uh, you know, the, the number is about 15% of um, PhDs in the biomedical sciences actually move into a tenure track position that they're trained for. Everybody else go somewhere else. And some of those people do have full-time jobs in pharma or, you know, like I did for government for a while and now I do in, in a small business side, but others move into completely other areas and industries. Some some leave science entirely. And I think those numbers are, are 25 or 30%. So we have a highly skilled um, set, of, uh, set of individuals who could be and probably wanna be because they didn't get into science to get a PhD unless they had some interest. They could be involved in a very small way that gives them both monetary reward, advances the knowledge in a, in a much more replicable and faster way, but also gives them the, the satisfaction of knowing they're still contributing to that knowledge buildup. I think this tool allows us that type of tracking and that type of fractionalization, not without significant planning, significant mapping, significant um, adjustment of our current practices and cultures, but first you envision it second you figure out what the value proposition of the tools you have at your disposal then you figure out how to do it and i think we've we've overcome that 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 first and second piece and now we just have to do the third piece to make that happen yeah and you know that's what inspires me sean with what you're you've built actually or what you've uh, written and been working on is this vision it's definitely a long-term vision like let's be honest it's this is not happening this year or next year or probably not in the next five years to the degree that we both want it to happen. That being said, though, you got to start somewhere, right? So I think what you're doing, you are putting, you know, a thumbnail on the map right now. We are somewhere. We are here. We can get to there. So thank you again. I just it's inspiring for me. I want to ask you now. Let's take taking a step back. So what is your vision for Science Distributed? You know, it's an organization you started a few years years ago, and now you're turning it into a nonprofit organization, right? So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I guess you could say it was my, uh, my starter startup. I, um, I spent 20 years in academia and government. I learned a lot about science from working at the bench to translation of science to being a research administrator for a large clinical research network to how that moves into clinical practice guidelines and policy um, to how funding works to how grant review and programmatic review and how some of the gap analysis and programmatic decision making happens. I learned a lot about the system of science from a lot of different perspectives. I didn't learn a lot about business. Um, so when I started a startup, um, which which became um, uh, Science Distributed, I, I had a lot of uh, detailed subject matter knowledge and a vision of what I wanted to do. 
but I lacked two critical things. One was the business skills, which I kind of got as I, I, I went along. Um, and the other was the technical skills, which, which honestly, I didn't develop more than, you know, superficial knowledge of a lot of programming and development that have to come into play. I am not a programmer. I am not, I'm not a developer. And um, I didn't have, have those skills. I partnered with some people who had some, some, some deeper knowledge than I did, but they were not, you know, seasoned team that anyone was going to um, give us millions of dollars. And I, as a business guy, was not even wired to, to, to do business very well. To be honest, I, I was um, from a academic or government standpoint, just trying to execute a mission. And so I was doing a lot of stuff and, you know, really good at educating and speaking to people and coming up with ideas. But with some of the gaps that I had business and technology wise, um, it became apparent that, that I was either going to move too slow. I was, you know, I, 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 you know, was able to bring revenue in. I was able to, you know, uh, turn a profit and make it sustainable. Maybe not uh, very uh, delightedly sustainable, but but sustainable for a little while. But it wasn't anything I could scale on. So if I was going to execute what I wanted to do, I needed to have partners. I needed to have something bigger. And of course, um, my friend uh, Heather Flannery has a very similar vision, although a different background than me. And she had been working um, for almost a year and a half with. Uh, a group um, called Consensus, which is a you know a, a big big blockchain company, and you, probably anyone listening to your podcast knows who they are. But she had been working in the health capacity and and, and building up a health um, portfolio for them. And and in her discussions with Joe Lubin, who is the the, the head of, of that organization, um, they had decided that her spinning off a group called Consensus Health would um, would be better for the execution of that vision with the partnership and the parentship of of Consensus. And she was able to achieve that at the beginning of March. And so at the, at the time, at the end of 2019, I had spent a lot of time writing a book. I was, I was um, not successful getting some of the federal grants I tried to. Um, I was thinking about doing something different. And she said, hey, Sean, do you want to do you want to work with me as a chief scientific officer? Basically, I, I was delighted. This is, you know, I'm, I'm walking along to, a, to, to a, a goal that's far away and a bus comes up and said, hey, we're going to the same place. Um, I, I, I was very happy to do that. Um, I hopped on the bus and there's a lot of other great people on there. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Dr. Alex Kahana, our chief medical officer. Um, Dr. Jonathan Holt is our chief medical information officer. Uh, Bill Gleim is our chief technology officer. And of course, Heather is our founder and, and, and uh, CEO and, and, and extremely capable in a business way that I, I simply am not. I'm learning every day from her. Um, so we have the technology and we have the, the business component that I didn't have before. And I still have that vision and I'm able to move, move towards it more quickly. So for me, that, that was why I, I decided that Science Distributed was, was good in its idea and its vision, but not um, viable in a long-term business goal um, or in the fastest way to get to that vision. So while I'm talking about faster miracles, I decided to work you know, in a faster way towards achieving that goal. Um, there are still components of what I wanted to do that I think are um, maybe beyond the current scope of what a, you know, a, a startup tech company is going to do. Um, I, had, I had anticipated starting up a nonprofit at some point that would be an arm of, of what I wanted to do with Science Distributed. So now Science Distributed is going to become that nonprofit arm. And I say going to become because quite honestly, the past couple of months from uh, you know, jumping on board with a with a new startup to oh my goodness, now we're in the middle of a um, worldwide pandemic like we've never seen before, and we need to pivot to how to tackle that 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 situation and help with the COVID nineteen um, uh, focus of things. Um, that's really put science distributed a little bit on the back burner. 
Um, and and the what I want to do with that will come into play hopefully later later on this year. Um, right now, um, uh, I've taken the science distributed site and kind of put some of the vision that's in the book and the book itself at the forefront of that. And and um, you know keeping a little bit of a journal um, going forward that I had done previously but had fallen off from. So so I would say it's in the science distributed is in a holding pattern at the moment. Um, though I hope by by the end of the year it will be. Um, more shaped to uh, what parts of the vision need to be executed by a nonprofit. Um, that overall vision that I have um, is, is continually refined with the given situation um, as to what's being executed by federal organizations, what's being executed by other people in the, in the ecosystem, what's being ex executed by Consensus Health. Um, you know, we're not just doing blockchain for medical research, but that's one component of what we're doing more broadly, um, but also what isn't being done. And in that gap analysis, I will figure out what science distributed needs to be to help that vision forward rather than just try and make it whatever I want and hope that fits in. Um, so I'm gonna take my time and, and make sure it fits in right. Um, many of the partners I had from a for-profit perspective um, are, are still interested from a nonprofit perspective. So we'll set that up in, in, the, in the proper structure and with the proper mission and vision that it needs to have. So it's uh, science distributed is an idea that's still there and is uh, gonna take different forms. And and it's its next form will be a nonprofit and consensus health um, and and uh, the science arm, but the, the whole the whole piece is gonna play a major role in in how this whole ecosystem moves forward and those gaps in the ecosystem are gonna define back to science distributed what it needs to do. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, I do wanna mention a couple of things for the audience. I did interview Dr. Alex Kahana and Heather Flannery on my podcast, so you can check them out in previous podcasts. I definitely also want to talk to you about COVID-19 because that is a huge thing. But before we get into that and what's going on uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, can you just describe your role and your goals at Consensus Health? Like as, a, as the chief scientific officer, what, what role do you play? How are you influencing the decisions that are being made? Certainly. Um, well, it's... Uh... I said it's been an interesting journey because we launched on March 2nd and by by middle of March realized we needed to pivot hard to, you know, not just for for business sake, but for humanity's sake, really focus mm -hmm. on, on issues relating to COVID-19. Um, so so what's uh, the overall structure is, you know, you've got in, in Consensus Health, you've got an organization focused on health, but with the parent of Consensus and some of the tools that Consensus has already built. Cons consensus has been around for for a number of years, I think five years already, and has um, created a number of tools, a lot of brilliant people there, Mine, uh, mostly mostly focused in in different directions than health, though even some health ones in there. And those tools are, are already at our, our capacity as uh, Consensus Health to look at different problems within healthcare and figure out where that they can fit. But we also have a great tech team that's building other tools um, with partners where, where appropriate um, and able to design around problems. So we're not just creating tools and trying to sell them, we're trying to fix problems within healthcare. And with that, you've got both the, the uh, chief medical officer and the chief medical information officer I mentioned, um, uh, Dr. Alex Kahana and Dr. Jonathan Holt, who, who bring an array of talents and focus and subject matter expertise. And I, as the chief scientific officer, bring, bring you know, a overlapping but, but, but separate uh, set of expertise to really identify early on what are those key things that need to be brought to bear when you're building tech, not just to solve a problem, but to solve a problem in the human and medical environment. 
Um, and for me, it's within the scientific environment. So it's, it's to make sure what we're doing fits scientifically, make sure what we're doing improves science rather than it degrades it in any way, um, but also looks for those opportunities where science itself can be fixed and can be improved. And I think, you know, in the book, I've outlined a lot of those. Maybe you don't want to, you know, outline all of your business, uh, uh, potential business areas for, for the entire world, but I don't really mind because I think it's such an opportunity-rich environment that if other people are working on some of these problems, it just allows me to focus on, you know, D instead of C. Um, and so in Consensus Health, my, my role is sort of, uh, you know, twofold. One is to support everything that's going on for healthcare um, to make sure it's got that scientific or evidence base that's supporting it. Um, but also on the other side is to really look at science and medical research specifically and how we can apply both the tools that we have, but also tools we can develop to the problems that are there. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. IBM has recently launched a network called Rapid Supplier Connect to link health providers with medical equipment suppliers. It typically takes about four to six weeks for buyers to vet and onboard new vendors or suppliers after they find each other, said Mark Trishok, IBM's global blockchain solutions leader for healthcare and life sciences. The blockchain could help dramatically bring that time down for healthcare providers in dire need of equipment such as masks, test kits, and ventilators, he said. Suppliers currently on the Rapid Supplier Connect blockchain platform include Project 95, which helps healthcare workers procure personal protective equipment, and about 200 companies that are members of the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation. Members of the federation include apparel companies that aren't in the healthcare space, but have agreed to develop masks and other equipment for healthcare workers. The goal is to have a range of trusted global suppliers on the blockchain network that can provide healthcare organizations with about 15 types of medical equipment, including masks, ventilators, dialysis machines, and oxygen masks. The vendors are vetted by the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation, Project N95, and others. Mr. Trishok also said blockchain will hopefully help these partners trust each other quicker and added that monetary transactions won't be done on the blockchain, but rather separately between the suppliers and buyers. I think IBM is doing a great job leveraging their existing industry trust to recruit organizations like this into its blockchain network. I do wonder if the private permission approach will maintain relevance against a more decentralized public permission blockchain. Check out the link to the full Wall Street Journal article in the show notes. If you are looking for a way to get weekly industry news and highlights in the blockchain healthcare space, subscribe to Robert Miller's newsletter on bert.substack.com. Robert's been a guest on the show and he's a senior consultant at Consensus Health, and I think he does such a great job curating the top stories affecting our industry. A link to the newsletter is also in the show notes. And now back to the show with Sean Mannion, Chief Scientific Officer at Consensus Health. Right, and Consensus Health is actually hosting a hackathon, a virtual hackathon um, right now, and it's called Stop COVID-19 Hackathon, uh, and you are actually a judge on that. I am, I, am, I am a judge, and I've been having a ball because they asked me to be Master of Ceremonies at the, at the unconference that kicked it off last Thursday. Um, I have not had a lot of uh, involvement with hackathons. I, you know, I go to Distributed Health, and you know, my, uh, uh, John Roising, who was, who was my, my business partner with, uh, with Science Distributed, and is still working with me in, in, 
you know, what we're going to do with it. He, he would, he was the tech side and he would go and focus on what was uh, going on at the hackathon. And I go over to the main conference and we'd reconvene later. Hmm. And so there was definitely um, for me a, a learning curve and what is this was trying to do. And I think that this one is a little more open and, and, and wide open and bold um, compared to some of the smaller ones that have happened in the past. Um, it, but it's been exciting to learn, and and we've got a great community of we were working with Gitcoin um, along with uh, you know Consensus is one of our sponsors and a number of others. Um, but I've you know I I did actually have a, a, a GitHub GitHub account before and I got into the blockchain world. I at least needed to understand how things worked, even if I couldn't recreate them myself. Um, so I, I I jumped into the the, the Gitcoin community, um, which which you know if if you signed up for GitHub, you can get into the Gitcoin community without signing up again. Um, but I, I've been able to navigate that and learn a little bit, but then interacting with the group of, of uh, hackers from around the world, it's been fascinating because I understand what they know and I don't, and, I, and they, they start to understand what I know and they don't. And one of the unique aspects of, of our hackathon um, is that we've brought uh, dozens of health and life sciences mentors into into the, the the forum, into the town square at Gitcoin. So the, the individuals there who are forming teams, and then you can still form a team. Go sign up now at consensushealth.com. You'll find the link. If you want to be a mentor, if you want to be a participant, if you want to be a partner, you can still sign up. We brought these mentors in and we're giving, um, you know, during open office hours and then and then in contacts off hours asynchronously and then during unconferences that we're having every Thursday, we we allow the the, the hackers who are brilliant at putting tools together to solve a problem, but may not understand the nuances or the specifics of the data flow of the challenges within how you how you create a vaccine or or what it takes to get something through the regulatory framework to um, the, put it in the, the emergency use authorization of FDA. Um, these these types of subject matter specific areas that they have questions about, we bring the subject matter experts to bear in these health mentors so that they can have dialogue back and forth. So that what's formed by this hackathon isn't simply, hey, here's a great idea and a tool, but maybe it's going to take many steps to get it implemented. These are going to bring those two things closer together. And we hope to find at least a few things that are very quickly applicable and, and able to be brought to bear to some of the problems that we're facing. Um, the, the, the subject of the um, hackathon itself is stop COVID-19. There's really no f limit to what you can work on. You know, it can be, it can be something directly uh, relating to the health issues at hand. It can be something secondarily relating to anything from domestic violence issues that are seemingly popping up with a lot of the, the lock-in and shelter in place to, you know, secondary issues with medical supply chain. Um, there's, there's no limit to what problems we need help solving. So there's no limit to the problems you can try and solve um, and create a solution for. So it's, it's been great to be part of that. Um, I think that type of, um, Effort is happening in a lot of different places. I see, I see a lot of different groups. I see a lot of companies, big and small, trying to do what they can and finding ways for us all to work together and to find those individuals who've got the ideas with, um, you know, the the places with the funding, with the the structures that know how to navigate the health system and get all those things together so we can get, you know, ideas into place faster. Um, that's that's just another component of faster miracles. Yeah, and I think you know that entire coordination effort is fantastic. It's it's very important. I think the the concept makes sense, especially since we're all remote now. Um, I wanted to ask you about a specific use case now. So, using COVID nineteen viral and antibody testing shortages as an example right now as a problem that we're seeing. 
Why can blockchain help? Um, well, viral and antibody testing is, is, is challenging because there are, there are a lot of different tests out there. Last time I looked, there was close to three dozen that had gotten FDA emergency use approval. And that's just in this country. I'm sure there's a, a wider array that are in use or being considered for use in, in other places in the world. And they each work in slightly different ways and have different levels of effectiveness and different levels of complexity in, in using them. And so they have different levels of, of specificity and selectivity. And so you, you, you have both good idea, hey, let's use these things to test and we'll know who has the antibody and who doesn't. Um, but you don't have really uh, well-established science as to what that means or what two different tests would mean or what the array of tests that are going on in different places um, it, it, what's happening that data and where it is known and controlled by. Um, and I think there's, there's blockchain applications all along there. There's blockchain applications for um, maybe aligning um, different tests and making sure if somebody has a positive test in you know, a good way or a bad way, um, that test in, in the, the provenance of, of how that test was administered, who administered it, how, you know, was the, was the test itself that was distributed, was that kept at temperature the whole time? You know, certain, te certain tests, if they are stored at too high or too low a temperature, are no longer going to work with the same accuracy. You want to be able to know that. And with our Internet of Things, you can start to get some of that information and have that information at the fingertips in an accessible but permissioned way um, that, that, that helps the public health um, end goal, but doesn't necessarily give away too much with respect to um, unnecessarily with respect to privacy. Um, and I think there's a there's a another layer of what blockchain can do. And here, you know, I want to stress that both Consensus Health and the, 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 the COVID hackathon are not strictly just about blockchain. There's an array of tools that come along with them, different privacy preserving tools. You know, every, everything from, from zero knowledge proof to, to using federated learning to be able to touch research data or touch health data without moving or replicating that data unnecessarily, thereby increasing the risk of a, of a data leak. Um, all of these tools can be brought to bear in ways, and we're looking at this now, and other, other groups are looking at, at, at how this can be done. Um, without having to have a trade-off between, you know, uh, public health and privacy. Um, you know, it's always been considered that, that those two things didn't go hand in hand and you had to give up some of your privacy in order to make sure everyone's public health went up. I think there are, I think things have changed and I think we haven't gotten to where we found the direct application and many of the people who are involved in policy don't yet know that it's possible. But I think you can have both that public health and safety without giving up the privacy. There's the there's the classic um, description of, of of what blockchain chain can do with regard to sharing of information. And you think about an ID and you go, you know, you go to a, a bar and you show your ID and that ID has your birthday. That ID has your picture. That ID has your, your, your where you live and it has, um, you know, secondarily derived from that. It has your your age and whether or not you're over 21. Well, is there a way to take something that that's information rich and then give only the information which is necessary 21 or not 21 to the person at the door to the bouncer there are ways of doing that and i think similarly there are ways of doing that with a, a positive test result or whatever combination of electronic health record and current symptomology with with positive test result allow you to you know i don't think it's going to be the case and i don't think we have the accuracy of testing to make it the case 
that you can't move from point A to point B without without that test. I don't I don't think we're ever going to really see that. I, I think if it gets pushed, it'll be unwise because we don't have the accuracy of testing to to make that happen. But it may be wise to say, hey, this is a this is a senior home, and we don't want you coming in here, even if there's a chance you might be. Um, you know, is, is sick, or we want to make sure everyone who's staffing this place has the antibodies so that they can't get sick as easily. That makes more sense. So there may be pockets of places where the testing um, would be useful, but still having the ability to have that trade-off between public safety and privacy with blockchain and with some of the array of privacy protecting tools, I think is one of the goals that we should be focused on right now because it's very, it's very achievable. It's, it's, it's within, it's within our grasp. Um, we, we need to, to have the will to do it, the knowledge that it can be done, and the, the funding and the, and the skill sets brought together um, all at the same time. And, 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 and we're kind of there. That's the, the world's ready for it. So I actually have a couple of questions that came in from my community, my Telegram uh, group. So I want to ask those. In what adoption sequence would you expect different stakeholders in science to buy into the integration of blockchain and health research? Meaning, like, is it going to be the academic staff, the PIs, regulators? Who will first? How will the sequencing look like? Uh, it's a it's a very good question because it's one I'm trying to solve of what sequencing gets us there the fastest because you, you kind of have to find the right partners at, at at each different level. I mean, you have you have the the federal agencies that that do funding as well as do some of the regulatory and policy guidance. Um, you have um, the universities that have um, not only the, the research administration component, but, but really the, the, the key cybersecurity component for a lot of where the data, data sits is going to be mostly housed within the universities. Um, you know, and, and of course, all this is, is, is scalable to you know, private industry and so forth. But I'm going to talk about U.S. federally funded research in academia as, as sort of the, the, the main model. Um, so I think at the university level, both the research administration and the cybersecurity are key stakeholders. Um, you have the researchers themselves who are, you know, probably the most important ones because if they don't buy in, you're not doing anything. Um, and that's that's not just the PIs, but that's the the postdocs, that's the junior investigators, that's the technicians, that's the students. So so that's you know maybe you get maybe you get at the grassroots level or at the ground level of researchers, you get um, more students or younger individuals who are more adapt to change, uh, 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 more likely to change, they could become the ones. But there are PIs who are, who are uh, innovators as well. It's just maybe the, the sheer numbers. Um, so those stakeholders on the ground are very important. You also have um, sort of secondary stakeholders in, in you know, the publishing industry um, and where they are with things. Um, you know, in, and, and really the end product of it, you know, what, what it goes towards is advancing medical research. So you have the, the clinical community, which, you know, overlaps significantly with the research community, not, not that researchers and, and, and providers are separate, but they're two separate focuses of OFOSI. And, and you, have, you have some individuals that overlap and some organizations that overlap, but they're, they're two separate areas. Um, and, and there you also have a component of regulate, regulators, um, which is uh, perhaps discrete from the policy regulators. Um, so they're going to come into play. So with, with, with all that painted out, and there's, there's groups I'm missing and forgetting about, the application of, of what's going on um, on a medical device is, is going to have uh, the manufacturing community and, and, and some of the private side as well as pharma would have the same thing. But I think you need to get top-down top and bottom-up um, applications almost going simultaneously. You need to have the policy people saying, hey, we like this technology and we want it to be looked at. 
um, or it's never going to get past the sort of novelty phase on the on the grassroots level. But at the same time, if you don't have people experiment with, experimenting with it and moving forward with it at the grassroots level, you're not going to have any top-down push be effective. And I've been there. I've watched the the the, the two. You 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 want to go bottom up, but you never really get the the the, the amount of effort to overcome uh, institutional change. You want to go top down, but you never really get the force to make people change their behavior. They they resist it. So you really need those two to come together. And of course, the administrative um, component in in the universities needs to be taken into account. But I think they'll follow what happens at the governmental uh, policy level. At the same time, the regulators need to be engaged. The regulators need to be engaged early and and often. Um, my my first uh, uh, foray into peer reviewed literature for blockchain. Um, was a impact of blockchain on clinical research from a regulatory perspective with uh, Wendy Charles, who was the lead author and a couple of my other colleagues. It was really important for me that we outlined both the value, but also the complications um, from a regulatory perspective. Because if you don't start talking to, to the human research protections group, if you don't start talking to some of the people at uh, Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights, you're not going to get the permission to really move this into a scalable um, a scalable vision. So I think I think that really you need to almost simultaneously do top down and bottom up. I think you need to engage the regulators, and I think you need to um, take the temperature and understand what the concerns at the university administration and, and cybersecurity levels are. Though I don't think they're going to be the prime movers. Um, so I, I see that as as sort of the you know the 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 combination of moves that will that will move this into more enterprise wide use um and and i see movement at health and human services has a has a cio and jose arietta who's very interested in and and got the first authority to operate for blockchain in the federal government um i don't have to work that hard to convince hhs that blockchain is is useful to be experimenting with which is good NIH is a little bit firewalled from the rest of HHS from a from a um, way they do business, even though they fall under their their funding umbrella. Um, so I think that that uh, NIH is is moving there, and I think there are people at the operational level, Orlando Lopez, who who's hosted a uh, you know a federal and, and and public private call every other Thursday for for a couple of years now. I mentioned that in in, in my book. Um, those are great. Footholds, but I think there still needs to be some senior level people at NIH who um, now want to move research forward faster and view this as a tool. So I think that's one of the gaps at that top down level that need to happen. Um, at the bottom up level, I'm seeing a lot of great experimentation on the public side and the private side. Um, it, I, I think that actually private side is further ahead than academics right now, and I would love to see more academics get involved, but there are some, and I think it's going to differ. Um, not only place to place, but but subject area to subject area. I think that uh, you know neuroscientists are going to move at the pace they move. Neurologists are going to move at the pace they move. Cardiologists are going to move at the pace they move. You're not necessarily going to have um, each of those all move in, in in tandem lockstep. I think there are certain you know uh, clinical trials, uh, and we're developing a clinical trials management uh, system tool that can be universalized, but I think with a lot of the data sharing, um, you need to get very specific in the in the data standards and you need to go almost subject by subject. And some subject areas are gonna move forward faster than others at that grassroots or ground level. Um, but uh, that's that's gonna, we're gonna see who gets out in front. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons that neuroscience has been as successful as it has 
in getting funding and moving forward its agenda is that back, you know, uh, go, closing in on 50 years ago, when, when a lot of the brain scientists first started working on the brain, they also were looking at um, how computers could play a role in their research. And they also informed how researchers were thinking about how computers could work. And a lot of the early AI came from those relationships, but a lot of the early neuroscience research was more technologically facilitated than other types of research that came from more legacy um, systems and legacy uh, medical approaches um, like cardiology. And so I think neuroscience and brain science has the ability to be out in front in a lot of this when I talk about that, that ground up, which, you know, I'm biased, I'm a neuroscientist, but, I, but I, 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 I don't say that because of that reason. I think that you're going to see the brain scientists, um, both at the clinical level and the preclinical level, as some of the leaders in this field um, in, that, in that bottom up. That's my, that's my approach. Do you think that it's different in different parts of the world? I mean, we kind of focused on the U.S. here with like how our academic institutions are set up and um, NIH. And I'm just wondering if you think that globally it's different or maybe there's a different sequence. And maybe like, for example, in, in India or Africa or China, there's a more of a bottoms up approach. Um, I, I think it differs from place to place, definitely. And I don't know the other places as well. Um, from what I'm seeing, um, you know, uh, Europe is further ahead in applying blockchain to research and medical research than the U.S. is right now. So I think they're going to they're going to drive some of the innovation. Um, the reason I think that you need to get some of the movement in the U.S. is because as a as a funding body and as a as a body of movement for how things go, um, there's there's a lot of force behind that. So there will probably be learning from what's happening in Europe. But I think until you get some of the ball rolling in the U.S., you're not going to get the collaboration across uh, Europe and the U.S. that's really going to move this forward faster. That's probably going to happen in the subject matter areas like like neuroscience. I think that if you look to Brazil and South America, if you look to China, you're seeing a lot of tremendous growth in the amount of publications, maybe a little bit of un unevenness in the quality. I think you're going to have independent innovations come from there. Um, Brazil is definitely going to be more bottom up. China is a little bit bottom up in its innovation, but very top down in how it executes it, um, maybe almost to its its own detriment. Um, I think, you know, in, in Japan and South Korea, um, you know, stay, staying with the, the, the overall Asian continent, um, I think that you're going to have um, continued movement. And there's some there's some great South Korean groups who are who are doing some of the innovation at the grassroots level that I that I'm talking about. But again, as a as an enterprise system moving forward, I think those, you know, much like in, in neuroscience, those are going to flow into the United States and shape how the United States does things and change how the United States does things rather than the United States being the prime mover and changing everything else directly. It's almost kind of like a flow back and forth of a wave. Africa has has made tremendous progress in, in the amount of research that it does, but it's still in smaller pockets and not as universalized. But I think that especially when it comes to legacy technology being an impediment to um, some of the, the enterprise-wide use of this, you're going to see some major jumps and major advances coming out of coming out of uh, coming out of different parts of Africa. Um, I think I think that uh, India um, is probably um, one of the main innovators right now, but there's again a lot of focus on how India can innovate and change how the U.S. does things. Um, and and you're going to get a you know similar to the to the sort of wave back and forth that I was talking about. I think you're going to see that. Um, it's not it's not 
simply because I'm U.S. focused and I know more about the U.S. That's why I'm trying to dissect how the U.S. does things and change that. But if you look at how over the last 75 years, how funding has moved, how influence of um, overall um, science has moved, U.S. has been a, a overall plurality of the movement. Um, not that no one else has um, major advances and in innovations, but I think because of the size of the U.S. and the amount of money that goes into things, um, until things change there, it's hard to get that global way of happening. But I think a lot of the innovations will come from around the world, influence how things are done in the U.S., and then that'll sweep back out. I, I could be wrong. I know I talk with with uh, my friend Samson Williams and, and other people, and they think that the that the innovation will come from elsewhere, and then the U.S. will fall behind. Um, that may be the case. I, you know, I'm a scientist. I don't know. The best right. I can do is look at the evidence and look at what I see and make a prediction. But I'm I'm always open to refining my models. Um, but I see in the hackathon, and I see in 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 where where my book is being sold and who I'm talking to. This is a worldwide effort, and that the grassroots level. We've we've become remote. We can simply talk to anybody and communicate with anybody. And I think that's one of the, the changes that has accelerated with this with this current pandemic is that that you're going to start seeing less space dependency and how people are collaborating, um, though you're still dealing with the overall governance and regulatory structures country by country or, or region by region. Yeah, and, and sticking to that topic, focusing on, this is another question from the Telegram group, by the way, focusing on federally funded medical research specifically, how would you rate our institution's response to the COVID-19 crisis? I don't know if it's, it's. Uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to fall back on being a scientist. You know, if we, if we, if we start making declarations when you're first gathering data, you're just, you're just guessing. I don't know that we know how well we've done. We don't have a control to put it up against, first of all. Yeah. Um, you pull some controls from different you know, areas of the U.S. versus other areas. You can pull some controls from you know, how Sweden is doing things versus how France, Italy, and, and everywhere else in the EU. But you start comparing countries. You start comparing regions. You know, you're, you're starting from a different start point, and there's too many variables to really make well-reasoned assessments at this point. I know everyone's trying, and that's, we're humans. We like to do that. Oh, I, you know, I was worried about everything today. Oh, I was wrong about everything tomorrow. And that's, we've been watching that day after day. And you know, I, I was asked by, by, by someone on a recent, we, we, we had a conversation with a few hundred people on the consensus mesh about this. And I was asked what I, what I read on a day. What's the first thing I read on a daily basis? And it was like, not the news. And it's not, it's not any one news source I don't trust. It's that this is the latest data coming out. I'm not going to react to a data point. That's, that's not how I view science. I go to PubMed. I look for what's being published. What has actually been refined and packaged into you know, uh, something consumable. I'm, you know, I'm a guy that's going to the restaurant and going to the grocery store. I'm not running out in the field to pick my berries and pick my wheat and make everything. We, we, you know, if, if you start to think of information like food, there are those individuals who are involved in, in taking food from the source and moving it. There are those individuals who are involved in, in processing that. And then there are those who are involved in, in packaging it, sometimes in a fast foody kind of way and sometimes in a very healthful kind of way. Um, and then us as consumers of that, that's, you know, where, where do you want to be in that system? Well, I, I, I spend a lot of my time doing other things. I enjoy cooking sometimes. So I go to the grocery store. And I like to pre put things together like I do studying and then putting science together. But when I'm consuming at the tail end, I, I, don't, I don't go to the farm to get my meal. I go to the restaurant. Um, now, you learn to trust certain restaurants and, and others. But for me, that packaged information at PubMed, which is NIH's 
you know, peer reviewed literature um, uh, index database. That's that's where I'm reading things. So it puts me both behind the curve, but a little less being thrown by the wind every day with things being different. So it's yeah. about the original question of how we're doing. Um, I think we're doing the best we can. You know, there's a thousand ways to look back and say we could be doing it better. But if if someone knew for sure, they 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 would have um, you know gotten up and said that. And everyone's getting up and saying different things. So if you have a good idea and you can't convince other people of it, you really don't have that good of an idea. And so at this point, we're we're working from a place of an unknown. We're running through the dark and we're bumping into things, and that happens. And that's in the unknown. And we are we are comp you know. A, compensating and overcompensating. Did we overcompensate too much? Possibly. I mean, we're going to see a horrific tail to this when it comes to, you know, I mean, the, the long tail of, of, you know, impact of economics, uh, you know, mental health issues of people being in lockdown, anxiety issues through the roof, people with, uh, you know, a, a economic despair leading to all kinds of problems. This, this is hurtful this way and hurtful this way as individuals in a society. And, and which way you go and second guessing how, how, which way we should have gone is is not as useful as I think we want it to be. Um, figuring out where we are now and how we can move to the next step most effectively is for me where I'd like to spend my time. I wanted to actually comment on what you said about how information can be seen as food. And I think a, a lot of people around the world eat a lot of junk food. And I think they eat a lot of junk food by consuming media or information that's either like meant to serve a specific purpose or trying to influence you to think a certain way. It's interesting because it's not easy to go to PubMed and read an article. Most people don't have the patience for that. So I think it's something that is a cultural thing that we face now. It's just not something that people do. But I think in the future, if we, you know, I don't know if it'll ever change though. I just, that's something that I sort of struggle with. And I think like, you know, as a, person of science myself, you know, I like to think of everything as uh, probability, right? So I do like to take data as it comes in. And that is an important uh, thing for us to do now. And especially during this pandemic, who was your favorite scientist in history? Um, that's, that's hard. I like, uh, I like a lot of scientists that I've met and I like a lot of scientists in history. My favorite, I, I thought about this a little bit and, uh, I think my favorite is probably a non-scientist, uh, if that makes sense. Um, the philosopher uh, Daniel Dennett, um, who you know, of of all the philosophers, kind of stuck his foot deeper into neuroscience than than you know, other than Patricia Churchland, probably probably most. Although Patricia Churchland was more of a scientist who went into neurophilosophy. Um, but I think I think Daniel Dennett had a lot of influence on how I think of things when I was a biochemist undergrad, and I was I, I, I first got turned on to some of his books. Um, and and it, it, for me, really shaped a lot of my thinking and, and was very influential. So I think that's probably, that's probably my, favorite, uh, my favorite scientist is a philosopher. So. Awesome. What do you believe in that most people would disagree with? That we can improve. I see improvement all the time, even when I don't feel it. Uh, you just find a frame of reference from further back and, and look where you are now and you can see improvement. And, and once, you, once you understand that, that we don't, we don't always feel the improvement, but as long as we're doing the steps that are that are appropriate and adjusting when we need to, um, if you if you take the right perspective, you can see that improvement. And I think that on an individual and a societal level, we can and do improve in more ways than we give ourselves credit for. And if we recognize that a little bit, it'd be easier to do it even more. Um, so I, I think I think that uh, 
that we can improve and that we are improving in many ways is for me, the thing I believe that probably most people would disagree with. So this question is actually another one from telegram. Uh, it's interesting. Do you think progress in medicine has been slowing down? All of the discoveries of the last 50 to 60 years pale in comparison to those of the preceding 50 to 60 years. Things like antibiotics, basic hygiene, vaccinations. I think, yes, it's been slowing down. That's some of the dilution and the, and the, the off turn of return on investment um, uh, for, for scientific research that I mentioned. Um, I think that... Um, some of the most impactful things that, that we aren't seeing every day are because we had bigger gaps that we were trying to, to tackle and we solved some of those gaps. Um, but also I think some of it is um, a push towards or incentivization towards incrementalism. It's a lot safer to be a career scientist and think incrementally. Um, whereas in the past, either because of necessity, World War II, um, or, or because of the nature of what science was and who was doing it, jumps forward were more likely. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, we can't have those jumps anymore. I just think that we, we, we haven't been incentivizing that type of thinking in a way that, that it's happening or that we're noticing it happening. Um, and that might be another factor is that in the, in the cacophony of noise that is amongst us, you know, what if those same ideas were there but they're harder to sell and they're harder to, to put out there. I mean, it used to be a much simpler time with a communication framework of science and then you report it and people notice it and then it gets reported and it never even hits the news or the media or the popular press until it's very advanced. And now everything, you know, as soon as a, a scientist in a lab can tweet about it, everyone in the public is discussing it. And, and I wonder if that, that, uh, that dilution while, while good for getting the conversation going, also keeps us in that incremental, incrementalism. I, I wonder if that doesn't have some sort of impact. I, I, I'm not sure it does, but I feel as though it's, 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 it's um, dampening the surface, if you will, and, and allowing less, less jumps of exceptionalism. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. What is your favorite book? And, and, and here I, I got a lot of them and sometimes it changes, but the, the one that's been most influential for me for the past couple of years, and I brought it, I brought it out because I figured you would ask, is, uh, is, is what do you do with an idea? Um, and uh, this book is a, a children's book, but I find, it, I find it almost meditative to go back and reflect to it. A, I can read through it very quickly because it's a children's book. Um, but B, it really just takes the idea of, okay, you've got an idea. What is this? What do you do with it? People might laugh at you. You might be unsure what to do, but just keep moving forward with it. And what that idea is and what it can become is worthwhile. And so for me, this has been a past couple of years, a useful and inspirational meditative book to follow along with. So I will, I will recommend that to really anybody because everybody has ideas. And at some point or another, you want to run with one of those. And that's, a, that's the simplistic guide to, to executing an idea. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Everyone does come up with ideas. I think the execution part is important and, you know, not being afraid of your idea either because a lot of people might fear rejection of the idea or that they can't do what they want to accomplish. I think you'll never know until you try and that should be another title of a children's book. You never know until you try. Um, yeah, that's a good answer. Thanks. What are your thoughts about the technological singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045? I'm a, I'm a fan of Ray Kurzweil, so I've, uh, I've anticipated that on or around that time, um, 
things will change forever. Now, I, I, I find it a fascinating idea. I, I don't, um, I don't disagree with it. I don't know with what level of accuracy the timing is exactly that, but I, I do see us um, advancing in some ways that once we hit a certain point, we, we, we jump forward. Um, once we are capable of creating augmentations to our intelligence of sufficient amount, those may be able to propel us forward in almost a perpetual way that, that accelerates. And that's, that's, you know, it, it may, maybe that's dumb, simplifying it or dumbing it down too much, but that's, that's the singularity. I think we're going to see that point. I, I don't have any good internal estimations as to when it will be, but I think that, um, the argument that uh, Ray put forward in the singularity is near is 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 reasonable, and even though that's uh, you know probably what fifteen years old now, um, still has stood the test of time. And you know, of course, he's working for Google now. If anyone can influence that, it's it's that. So you know, the best way to be right about a prediction is to make that prediction come true. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that we're moving towards something like that, and I think it's going to be in that type of time frame. Whether or not it'll be that drastic, whether or not it'll be exactly then, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that's that's the direction we're moving. And, and, and because things are moving more quickly, that's why I'm very concerned with how we think about it and what we what we embed in those core technologies that will take root there. You know, that will be key from an ethical standpoint, from an inclusivity standpoint, from a who gets to benefit standpoint. So I, I, I do see... Um, that happening and I think we want to prepare for it appropriately, but of course we won't. So we'll see what we'll see what occurs. Awesome. Uh well Sean, I think that's all the time we have for today. I definitely want to do a second episode with you. I think this was such a fascinating conversation. Um it's been a while since we were planning this recording, so thank you for joining the show. Um any final takeaways for the audience, anything they should be thinking about during this pandemic, during this you know, monumental shift from centralized science to decentralized science? Well, I mean, on a, on a human perf- perspective, um, take care of yourself and take care of other people. You know, every, everybody's a little bit off by all of this, and some people are a lot off by all of this. And, you know, those people you haven't thought about or, or, or talked to in a little while, it doesn't matter. Just reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? Maybe, maybe you don't hear back. Maybe it's just a, hey, doing all right. But you don't know who you might impact. People are isolated in a way they haven't been before. And not everybody is, is, is adjusting as well to that. So, so take care of each other, even if there's, there's people you wouldn't normally think about. Um, but I think probably more, you know, to the, to the topic, um, keep creating things, keep doing things, keep trying to find new ways and to contribute. You know, not everybody needs to be doing exactly the same thing. And just like, you know, in society from a, from a work perspective, you know, all of a sudden the, the people who stock the shelves at, at grocery stores, and that was, that was one of my first job was night stock at a grocery store, um, are doing something that everyone took for granted. And now not everybody does. Everybody plays a part. Everybody plays a role doing what you do. Um, is critical. Um, even if you can't do it right now because you lost your job or you lost your position, think about other things you can do. Think about ways you can improve and you will do that improvement that I talked about. You will improve individually, but improving societally will happen as well. And if we're going to have you know, uh, science blockchain by 2025, which I predicted back in, 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 in 2017, it's going to take a lot of effort from not just the people who are doing science and not just the people who are currently working with the technology, but from a lot of people who aren't yet. 
And so get interested in things and it doesn't have to be this and, and follow up on your interests and do things to reach out to other people. And I think that that's a tremendous value um, overall. Awesome. Sean, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Much appreciated. And we'll talk again soon. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.